Hey, before we start the podcast, I got something you're interested in. So Iron Source has teamed up with Deconstructor of Fun to bring you Level Up 2021 in late June. It's a virtual game developer conference you just don't want to miss. We'll have five different tracks to choose from, exclusive gaming content, a legit A-list roster of game industry expert, and of course, the crew, the normal hosts. We got myself, Mishka Katkoff, we got Eric Kress, Eric Suford. Adam Telfer, and Joseph Kim all hosting this event. It's a perfect way to level up your gaming knowledge. Anyways, there's a limited number of invites, so I suggest you register now by following the link in the description of this podcast. Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and today we're going to talk about life post-acquisition. Now, we are living in frothy times. Acquisitions are in the news every week. Zynga, Playtika, Tencent, Stillfront, Embracer, all these companies and many more are showing growth through M&A. And in many ways, M&A has become the norm for growth for, for large gaming companies. But according to research and recent Harvard Business Review report, the failure rate for M&A sits between 70 to 90% in business in general. So in this podcast, I'm joined by Lou Fasulo. He's a current CEO of Starform and former CEO of Z2. Now you may remember Z2 from games like Battle Nations or Paradise Bay, and from the fact that they were acquired by King in 2015 and shut down by King in 2019. In many ways, Z2 represents the more typical path of a company that goes through an M&A. You know, you have the dating period, you got the honeymoon after the acquisition, then the challenges to function effectively as a part of a larger corporation become inevitable. And that tends to lead to a shutdown of the studio. This podcast is, in my opinion, full of insights. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn and can implement these learnings, whether you're getting acquired or you're acquiring or your company is acquiring a company and you want to make it as successful as possible. And hey, as always, we appreciate all feedback. So send it our way. Use Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever the means. And without further ado, a shout out to our fantastic sponsors, IronSource, Facebook, and AppsFlyer. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as a wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. 
AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zella, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Hey, Lou, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mikhail. All right. You're currently CEO and the founder of Seattle-based startup Starform. And I'd like to talk about Starform, but I think, I think that's a topic for another podcast <laughs> whenever, whenever you're ready to talk more about your newest company. But this podcast is more about your previous company, Z2. And that studio was acquired by King in 2015, and I'm sure... A lot of people listening to this podcast remember the, the games from Z2. Uh, you have Battle Nations, Trade Nations, Paradise Bay, awesome games. So I kind of wanted to kick off this this podcast asking about the basic stuff. The uh, you know what led and like what was the road leading towards the acquisition? Why did you go with King? How the acquisition went down in practice, and how did you communicate that to the Z2 team? Awesome. Uh, that's a whole lot of fun stuff to talk about, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so the, you know, the starting context that really kind of sets the stage for this whole experience is that uh, Z2 was originally actually built uh, to create a platform like an Xbox Live for mobile. And the company was initially incubated in Madrona Ventures uh, incubator space here in Seattle. And Damon Daniele was the technical founder at that time, this is 2009. He came from the Xbox team. He had a vision that was pretty compelling about helping these, these games and players connect um, and really providing a tool set for developers to build multiplayer games. Um, kind of playing in the same place, uh, the platform company, that the former Discord. Uh, uh, oh, uh, Open Faint. Open Faint, yes, thank you. You know, we looked at what OpenFaint was doing and our focus was more on the multiplayer side. One thing that was always running in the back of my mind is that Apple and Google could come out with their own thing. I could remember the battles between Microsoft and EA over the Xbox Live 
And I thought this is definitely a risk for us as a company. You know, we are we're trying to provide a, a service in an ecosystem where there's an 800 pound gorilla that could change their mind as to how they want to work. And, you know, certainly that's exactly what happened. Uh, game, uh, game Center was announced. Um, internally, we had a bit of a crisis moment. But the thing that was actually happening inside the company as well, having been fearful of this moment, I'd actually started a project to demonstrate the platform. But also in the back of my head, I thought this might be a way that we wind up making money. And that project eventually became Trade Nations. And uh, at the time, everybody was playing uh, Farmville on Facebook. I'd been watching Zynga for a while, kind of admired the data-driven approach, sort of the adoption of lean product principles. And we basically said, well, what are these Farmville players going to want in 10 to 12 months when they are ready, you know, as players, they've evolved and they're ready for something a little deeper. And so we built a game that we thought would be good for Farmville players a year out. And ultimately, you know, that that worked. Um, we were raising our second round of capital. And I remember a moment meeting with uh, DFJ where we were looking at the first data from our test market. And I, I just had this moment of looking up at the rest of our team and saying, holy cow, it's working out loud in front of the VCs. <laughs> and it was, it was an incredibly transparent moment, but it was also one of those moments where I was like, we're, we're good, you know? And, and we, up until that point, uh, the pivot was expensive in the sense that changing direction is not easy. Um, you know, you lose a lot of forward momentum. And while they sound awesome on paper and in sort of in the zeitgeist of San Francisco culture or, you know, startup culture, uh, pivots are hard and uh, they're demoralizing. And we actually were successful doing it. And it was pretty amazing experience. Um, and this was really the beginning of turning Z2 into a game company. Um, and it was really the beginning of building a culture that was really focused on the players. Uh, initially, I said, we want to wow players. And that actually turned into a joke on me as, uh, you know, why do we care about wows players? <laughs> um, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, that was a big step for us. And, you know, that Trade Nations came out. It actually reached number one grossing on the U.S. App Store. Uh, it made us a lot of money and it, it, it you know, had a great longevity. Um, and it enabled us to go on to build Metal Storm, our modern air combat game, multiplayer modern air combat game, and then um, Battle Nations, and then, as you mentioned, uh, Paradise Bay. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think a big thing about our culture is that we had a lot of folks that really admired the quality of Blizzard's products. And we really felt like we wanted to create games on mobile that people felt like were true games. And in 2011, 12, 13, there was not a lot of that on mobile. We felt like we wanted to have compelling decisions for players. We wanted to have social context that mattered and you could have real status with your community. Um, and we felt like skill and uh, you know autonomy were big things. And a lot of these games out there were 
just not providing a real gaming experience. If you were a gamer and you admired Blizzard and you looked at what was going on on the App Store, there wasn't much that was compelling. Yeah. Battle Nations actually was inspired by player feedback. So going back to this idea that players were at the center of everything we did, um, we eventually talked about our value became players first. And we got a lot of player feedback in Trade Nations. They wanted to attack their enemies. <laughs> and this was really fun for all of us. We thought that would be really compelling. But we did a little bit of a deep dive on that. We found out that in reality, 60% of the players were women. And we thought, you know, the folks that are saying they want to attack other players are probably not in that group. Um, so that actually gave life to Battle Nations when we started our second project. And this is really where the team started to grow. Um, started a third project soon after that. And our company moved into this, mind, like I moved as the CEO and the company as a, as a whole, moved into this mindset of how do we create governance for game development such that it respects the idea that fun is not a KPI and that the best work of creative folks is all about pride and the pride of ownership, pride of craftsmanship, and really intuition about what's fun. These things are not measurable. You will never find them on a spreadsheet, um, at least not before they're out in market. Uh, you can maybe argue that retention and engagement obviously start to give you real clues on these things. Mm. But most of the work, the hard work is done long before metrics are available. We went through iterations of this process. Um, and then eventually, as all companies do, we kind of went through the cycle of we had built several successful games. We had a, a few that didn't work out as well. Um, and we were refining our culture. Uh, and ultimately, we in 2014, we had three new games in test market. While we were still doing live ops, for several of our games, Battle Nations and Metal Storm, we were really betting on these new products. All companies eventually have to reinvent themselves mm -hmm. and make new products that people really love. We were going through that and, you know, it was a challenging, it's a challenging time when you cancel multiple games in a row. You know, always, it's always, uh, it looks glorious when you see it from the outside, when, you know, Supercell talks about it, but I can tell you that that's challenging time for the folks that are having their games canceled. Um, <laughs> for sure, for sure, especially in soft launch. Yeah, in soft launch, um, I, you know, when I talk about governance, like one of the things that we did, um, especially later, because a lot of these were learnings along the way, right? So we didn't start off by any means as a well-oiled machine, um, more a clunky uh, sort of broken machine that was learning as it, as it was going. But uh, we eventually kind of created this process where folks could move around between teams based on what they thought was going to be successful. And sort of the rules of that process were, you know, you put the company first, your team second, and your personal, you know, professional goals are important and they come in third. And Ultimately, that means, you know, we have to pay our bills so that we can keep building new products, but we also have to make new things. Um, and we also want your career to be rich and fulfilling. And so as people would engage in the system and move around from product team to product team, which wasn't just a chaotic thing, it was, it was a sort of, uh, I would say, peacefully negotiated <laughs> between the teams to make sure things weren't <laughs> too disruptive. 
the, the products that maybe weren't going to make it would expose themselves and it would cause us, it would force us to ask some hard questions about whether they were working. Um, and I would say to the teams, if you think something's not working, <clears throat> you're duty bound, not only to your team, but to your personal career to raise your hand and say, I don't think this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. And instead of leaving the company when you're in that position, go to another product. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't want anybody to have canceled projects on the resume if, if, you know, if you can avoid it. And, and more to the point, you hate to cancel those projects after you've been working on them for four years. And that happened. You know, it's sort of a part of life. But if you can reduce that, you, you create a better place to work. Three games in test market, Paradise Bay was one of them, and then Rise of Tyrants, which you're aware of, mm-hmm. and a third game that was uh, an extension of the Metal Storm franchise. And King saw these. They were all under a different brand. I think it was uh, Powder Monkey Games or something to that effect. I remember going to the bank and setting up the top secret iTunes account for this purpose. I don't know that that's really was helpful to us, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know what, what, companies, right. yeah, what companies even do that anymore. Yeah, I, I, I tend to believe that uh, there's very little value out of that. Yeah, um, more work than value. They had found our games and we actually were approached initially by a consultant that was just asking, you know, are you guys raising money and do you want to talk to King? And, and at the time we had $20 million on the balance sheet. We'd been profitable for a while. We didn't really have a lot of concerns and we were just kind of plugging away on our new products. The cool thing that happened in the middle of these discussions is I had an analyst that was working on Paradise Bay come to me and say, Lou, I want to give up my salary and exchange it all for stock for the rest of the year. Can I do that? <laughs> and that was the moment where I thought, okay, Paradise Bay is going to make money. When, it, when a data analyst comes to you and says, I want to put all my chips on this product, <laughs> that's the moment where you're like, okay, we're, in the, you know, we're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Initially, I just didn't believe that we would be you know, an interesting match with King. And after a few discussions with this a consultant that they had hired. I wound up talking to uh, Arno and uh, who head up the uh, was heading up the M and A process. Mm-hmm. They actually made some great arguments. You know, Candy Crush was being played by a huge number of uh, Clash of Clans players based on their research, and that their reach was just amazing, and that it wasn't like a very narrow demographic that was playing the game. It was kind of everybody. That was the that was the pitch. Everybody is playing Candy Crush. And when you think about it that way, it makes sense that Rise of Tyrants can get its, you know, sort of initial uh, escape velocity from cross-marketing there. And so can Paradise Bay. And suddenly everything kind of just feels like it can fit. And their perspective on the market was right. And that was actually the thing that really started the conversation. And then, you know, the other major real concern for me was how our, how's our team going to feel about this? We had 100 people that had contributed to building a great, great studio, building games that people really loved. We had a binder full of fan art in our mm-hmm. lobby. And we really felt a lot of pride in what we had accomplished. And so ultimately, you know, I felt... While they were never going to be at the table at King, I had to do a good job of representing them. And that process was really interesting in the sense that King wanted to go really fast. They were just like, once we get conviction, I I remember talking to uh, Stefan Kergman 
about this. And he said, once we make a decision, we get it done as fast as we can. And I, my reaction to that initially was, I don't know. I don't really believe that you guys can change your mind at any time. And why wouldn't you, if you learn something new or whatever? Um, but it's actually the, exactly the way they worked. They did their due diligence. They asked the questions that they felt like they needed to ask. And then away we went, things started moving very fast. We spent a bit of time talking about product and the thing that was really funny to me is that we were still learning about our own games, collecting data, iterating on marketing, talking to players and getting feedback. And I was just blown away. I felt like they actually knew more about Paradise Bay players than we did. <laughs> and that, was, that was a crazy moment. Um, and obviously for them, they can do a survey of 100,000 people in the blink of an eye. Uh, which we just couldn't do. So that sets the stage for being, you know, sort of opening the conversations and making them kind of interesting to all of us. The other thing, um, and I think you and I have kind of talked about this in the past, mm. learning about how they thought about development. Marcus Jacobs, um, in particular, we spent a lot of time talking about product development. And he and Sebastian Knudsen were pretty transparent about a project that was getting canceled at King. Mm -hmm. And getting to see that happen prior to even signing a term sheet and just learning about how they were working internally in a pretty transparent and humble way was eye-opening. Um, it was kind of one of those things where whenever you're having a conversation with an acquirer, it's all a sales pitch in some regard. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that happen and sort of learning about their perspective and the actions that they took internally or how they, you know, how they worked through it, I guess, really made me feel comfortable that it was the right place for our team to land. So you talked about, I mean, you talked about a lot of stuff. So the pivot from a platform to a game company, I actually did not know that Z2 went through that. Uh, I, I thought you, I, th I, knew, I, knew, I mean, I knew you had trade nations, but I didn't know it came after a pivot. And um, I don't, I don't know anybody who's 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 been through a pivot and thinks a pivot is a good term. I don't know if it, if it is even a good term in San Francisco. <laughs> so I think it's the yeah. most scariest thing. It's like a storm. A storm can be good, I guess, if you you know end up shipwrecked on a on a great you know paradise island. But normally it's just a storm. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. I think <laughs> the stories that people typically talk about are the pivots that turn into you know unicorns, and uh, so. <laughs> yeah, I think on some level, uh, pivots seem exciting because they're usually associated with this like brilliant decision in the moment to pursue this new opportunity. No, that means you usually, yeah, no pivot you is got it wrong the first time, right? Yeah, so. yeah. It's um, there there are good pivots, but usually, you know. Anyways, let's not talk about pivots. I get PTSD even thinking about those. Um. So, so let's talk about another horrible thing is game cancellations. You know, I've been through too many of those in my career. It is what it is. And all you can, you know, all you can push forward is the soft launch. And sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't work. And, uh, and that teaches you to be even more careful and more faster and more thorough in the development process so that you're never end up in the cancellation. And I like the approach that you guys took. So the company team and individual in that order, that's actually what Supercell's mantra is company first team second, and then an individual third. And, okay. and, and that whole approach of like, you can walk out of the team into another team 
uh, basically show your conviction or you can walk into a team because you believe in what they're doing. So having that sort of fluidity, that's actually also a very supercell thing to, to, uh, to implement. So I think you were even ahead of the curve. Like I, I think you were doing that even before supercell was doing that, or, or at least at the same time. And, um, interesting yeah. moment actually, uh, where several team members were reading creativity Inc. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. And, they came to me and they said, you know, I think Creativity Inc. should be required reading because it hits on a lot of things we're doing. <laughs> and initially, I didn't react to that right away. And maybe a few weeks later, I wound up getting the book and reading it. And I thought, wow, this is so validating. <laughs> this yeah. is so validating. These guys are uh, doing things that are getting at the same problems. Ultimately, that's the difference between management and governance. Governance is about you know, leaning, it's, it's like in the game theory world of like, what are people's motivations and how do you get motivations and good outcomes aligned? Um, as opposed to this sort of, you know, management and about, you know, accountability and that kind of thing that those, those types of things are uh, harder to make, harder to create amazing teams from. Yeah, it's a it's it's a good book. The the fun, the funny story how I read the book is I got it. So I was working at Zynga. Don Matrick was the uh, the CEO, and he gave me that book along with like four other books in our one on one. And I'm like, so is this a quiz? Like, like, will you ask me about this like next week when we have a one on one? So I definitely read it very thoroughly in a very short amount of time. Cause I didn't know, like I got like a, like four, four or five, I think four books. And after, after, after a meeting, I was like, okay, uh, is there, is there a timeline for, for this? I have to make also a game, you know, I can't be just reading books, but, uh, it is, it is a good, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's intense. I'll, I'll have to do that just as like a trial by fire trial by combat kind yeah. of thing for new team members. Yeah, just have a good one-on-one and at the end of one-on-one, just go walk back to your desk and then pick up four books and give it to the person and say like, okay, I want you to read this. These are really good books. And just don't say the time. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm off to the next meeting. <laughs> just look at their face. Anyways, anyways, a funny story. Uh, so you talked about the... um. You talked about you know creating a good place for as the company, and that's of course the most important play important thing to do because talent is your key resource. I mean, without it, you can't do anything. Uh, and I'm just curious. You said you had 20 million in your balance sheet. Your games were doing well. Your guys were super excited about the upcoming titles, rise, uh, titles Rise of Tyrant, um, Paradise Bay, and the um, I forgot the other third one, but it was the uh, um, metal storm extension. Yeah. 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 So why did you decide to go with, with, with King and overall take an acquisition? Because like, I understand that it was the next step. And in 2015, there's nobody hotter than King except supercell. I think those were the two companies that were just killing it. Everything that they did was, was just turning it into gold. So was it, was it really that, that, um, you were kind of, how do I say uh, excited, how excited King was about the games in your slate. And, and that kind of, you know, create the feeling that King is the right partner to take you to the next step because they believe in you and you believe in, in them. That's a great question. And, you know, it goes all the way back to sort of the initial context that we were talking about 
with Z2. Mm -hmm. Z2 was actually created by Madrona Venture Group. And then we sort of joined as employees. And that really informed how I thought about um, my, my fiduciary duty to the company and ultimately to Madrona. Um, and we pivoted into games. Games as a category is not something that Madrona typically invests in. Mm-hmm. In fact, I used to, you know, there are ups and downs in the game industry that can be pretty dramatic. And I use the analogy that our, our um, board member from Madrona uh, woke up one morning and found a Ferrari in the, in the garage. You know, we were doing really well. Cash flow was amazing. There's definitely a period of time where we had 70% gross margins. But then, you know, you get in that car and you hit the gas and you just don't realize how much power there is and you wind up in the neighbor's lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of the downside, right? Like the next game doesn't come out on time or maybe just doesn't do what you wanted yeah. uh, from a commercial perspective. And suddenly you're like, wow, this, I don't want to be in this industry anymore. It was a fun toy when the, you know, when the cash flows were amazing and better than anything else in our portfolio. And so ultimately, Madrona felt like this just, they were uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, they were with games, a lot of traditional venture, venture investors see it as like the, an opportunity to write a check and, and close your eyes, as opposed to maybe be, try to be helpful in the, in the areas where they are comfortable and they have the domain expertise. Yeah. So for me, there's a big learning about who you partner with, right? No fault of anybody's that we were in this situation. It was ultimately worked out great for Madrona. But having the right investors makes all of these things a bit easier. Um, and that was actually, you know, a big learning from this experience. It's definitely informed how we've thought about raising money and uh, in the context of Starform. But given that Madrona was the largest shareholder, not exactly excited about games. I felt like I had an opportunity to get the ship safely to harbor without really exposing them to a lot more volatility. And then King was a great place for folks to land. It wasn't like we were going off into the great unknown and the transaction was going to be fantastic, but I had no idea what was going to happen to the people. If some person showed up from some large game company in Asia, we didn't have any relationship with, we didn't know anybody that ever worked there yeah. and we were signing up some kind of deal who knows what would have happened right yeah um so that was a big part of it and you know the idea that our company would eventually be the genesis of a new billion dollar you know ip that was pretty compelling of course and i knew we didn't have we had money in the bank but we didn't have a hundred million dollars didn't have a billion dollars like king did so we knew that if we had a successful game, we were going to raise more money. And so we were going to, ultimately, we we're going to be faced with how do we navigate raising additional capital? And as, as the CEO, you have really two jobs, bring in the best people and let them run and make sure they have all the resources they need to be successful at their roles. And if you feel comfortable that you can do both of those things, uh, then you're in a good place. I was not sure about the financial side. I understand. I, th- that's a that's a very important point that he touched upon is the investors, because King naturally, <laughs> I mean they they had Index Ventures. That's a that's one hell of an investor, and and especially you know 
that they've invested into supercell at the same time and and in king and a few other of these mass monsters like roblox so they knew you know they they played the long game and i understand you kind of had the same type of investment situation as crowdstar had back in the uh, at the moment where where their investors kind of decided that we've seen enough this is too volatile uh even though crowdstar had, had design home in their in soft launch the investors still decided to kind of pull out of games not that they're bad investors it's just they're just uncomfortable with games it's not what they do and doesn't fit their portfolio and they decide to divest and 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 these things have happened so i understand a little bit better of that there were also motivations from the investor side uh to to uh to divest you you, you remind me of a little story uh uh-huh. during this whole process with king so the first they made a verbal offer to us and they said they were going to send it send a document and and uh as a follow-up and i remember on the call uh basically being severely disappointed and i said you know you don't really need to send that to me an email there's no way that anything's going anywhere with that um it was essentially you know the starting low ball offer kind of thing uh-huh uh-huh i just said yeah don't even don't even send that uh, yeah. you know i'm not that's not even close enough to consider. So got off the phone. I wound up syncing up with the board a couple, I don't know, like later that day or the next day. And without really understanding what I was walking into, I just shared that I told King to pound sand. (laughs) (laughs) And that was not as well received as I thought it would be. One of my board members said, you know, Lou, you would be a hero if you can get this done. Wow. I said, okay, okay. Uh, message, uh, you know, message received, right? Like, and and that was sort of the part about this is just not a category that we're comfortable with. So yeah. if there's an opportunity here that we can make work, let's try to make it work. And honestly, we were back in negotiation 24 hours later. And did you and, get it up from that point or? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we had, <clears throat> you know, price negotiations, negotiations are always a crazy thing because it's complicated. <clears throat> In, in games, especially because there's typically an anticipation of a product or multiple products in our case mm-hmm. that are that are creating the value that you're trying to buy, right? We we didn't they weren't paying for the revenue of our current games. They didn't care about that at all. They were they wanted to, you know, they were excited about the team and the products that we created, and they felt like they could take them to the moon. Mm. And so, you know, we're trying to kind of come to an agreement on something where we're on the opposite ends of the table and really want to have a great working relationship if we come to agreement. And so that that is a challenging thing because as soon as you're done, you're on the same side of the table, kind of trying to take on the world together. Navigating that um, and being successful, I think, at being on the same side of the table at the end of it uh, is kind of critical. Yeah. And then one thing that you touched upon that is very important to to understand is you had direct access to the founders of King and the C-suit and were able to spend time with them, see how they work, see how they make difficult decisions, uh, which made you the acquire the, 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 the to, to feel more comfortable. Uh, that's, that's super important. That, uh, that doesn't often happen. I mean, it, it happens more often nowadays, but it's not typical, especially with the acquisitions like, like, like you guys were experienced because King was so much bigger than, than you. They, they, they didn't kind of need to pull out the red carpet. If you, if you know what I mean. So, 
Uh, I think it's it's just it's sure. the ground for future work. Absolutely. And that team, uh, Ricardo and Stefan, uh, especially very much entrepreneurs in my mind. Um, they were very open to new ideas. They were always looking for ways for King to grow, try new things. <clears throat> that was exciting. And I felt like we could drive a lot of value for King. I really felt convinced that when my team became shareholders in King, that we could play a significant role in increasing the value of King for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They were they were clearly excited about the games, and I, I understand. Rise of Tyrants looked really good. Uh, I played it a lot, and I remember Paradise Bay. I mean, it looked like heyday 2.0. So it's like a no brainer for for King. Similar audience, uh, a little bit older female, like more mature female. Um, yeah, why not? Why not? So let, let's talk about life post acquisition. So back in the days, back in 2015, these sort of a uh, city-state model didn't really exist. When you got acquired, you you know you got you got down to the badge. Like everything was changed. Here are the new values. This is the new company you're under, and you're just gonna be King Seattle. That's it. There's there's no no Z two. So how did like what I wanted to ask is like how did King influence Z2 both as a, as a place to work? Like what was the atmosphere afterwards? Uh, how did they influence? Yeah, and, and most importantly, how did they influence the ways you guys were making games before? This is a good question. So we actually did not rebrand immediately. In fact, we went through this whole process <clears throat> where the brand team at King created this part of the family brand. And so Z2 was part of the family. <laughs> I love the family thing. That's that's always <laughs> with with everything. Even though these are business ventures, they still like to call it family. Yeah, yeah. It's just silly. <laughs> I do really. Um, that is one regard that I really like, or one element I really like about the Netflix culture perspective. Mm. Uh, it's a sports team, and you're there for performing. Yes. Uh, you know, great leaders are very focused on getting results. Exactly, um, and so. Z2 was part of the family. That's how we were branded. Mm. Everybody had two business cards. We retained our brand initially. Um, and there was an all staff at King where, you know, the news was shared with two, I don't know, at the time, I guess it was maybe 1,500 or nine, maybe even 900 employees. I think at one point we were one-tenth of the overall company. And Ricardo and Stefan said, in no uncertain terms, hands off. <clears throat> I don't know that that was really the right way for us to become part of King. Um, and it, it, it was definitely like a legitimate start of this kind of nation state approach, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the thing that is not uh, totally clear, but you could, it's easy to kind of come kind of suss out that this was the case. Soon after we became part of King, the discussions with Activision started, right? So King announced that it was being acquired by Activision in, I think, October or November of 2015. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of becoming part of King was actually, in my mind, a very big time suck and attention suck for the leadership team. And they had to, they had to focus on you know, that they had to go through the exact same process that I had just gone through. 
So I was pretty aware of how distracting it was. In fact, I did everything I could, you know, to keep my team from being sucked into the vortex of thinking about what's this going to mean for me? How's my work going to change? In reality, the goal was not to have any changes happen, but they always do. Mm -hmm. I, I think go into that process knowing that a lot of things can kind of turn upside down. And so, you know, conversations with Activision went on for quite a while. Um, and leadership team was spending a lot of time in LA. I think that was a big distraction for them. And ultimately, it led to a really uh, lacking integration. Integration uh, sort of happened very piecemeal without a clear strategy. Um, and it could have done better. Uh, it could have been done better by both sides, ultimately. Mm -hmm. you know? So we eventually became King Seattle. And I, you know, in truth, I think that was ultimately kind of the right outcome. And we should have agreed to do that from the beginning. And part of the reason I think that's the case is because uh, Z2 was never going to be a standalone game publisher. Um, we're always going to be marketing our games to the Candy Crush audience. We, we, we knew that from the beginning. That was the sort of product and marketing strategy. It's it's a, it, it just seems like an Ill, inelegant solution to say, come work for Z2 where we make king games. That's <laughs> <clears throat> that doesn't seem like you're really getting at the core of the the goal there. Mm. Um, and uh, so I think that that was a problem and we probably should never have done that. I think the idea of a studio owning its product decisions and how they execute, that makes a lot of sense. And you don't need to be in the city state model to, to fundamentally agree to that principle. Mm. Was th was it a challenge because you had I mean Rise of Tyrants and Paradise Bay I haven't played Metal Storm the other uh, the one that was in soft launch but at least those two are two very very different games was there a little bit of a challenge that you guys did not have that sort of a clear positioning like like you know strategy games RPG games that kind of stuff because you were kind of doing a simulation game and a strategy game um, I think a lot of people looked at Z two when they were confused about what we were doing because we just did game we build games the fundamental approach was this when there are folks available to start working on a new game the, the first question you ask yourself is what does the market want today what are we passionate about doing such that we're willing to work on this for the next three or four years mm -hmm. what do we think would have potentially 10 years of longevity and that isn't sitting on the app store today ideally and so you rather than any kind of portfolio planning, I think you have to kind of you certainly any any game that you build does require skill set and experience in building games. But we took this more organic approach of let's take a look at the market when we're ready to build a new thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, we we talked to Zynga at one point about acquiring the company and and um this is probably in two thousand Eleven or twelve, and they were similarly confused. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, they looked at Metal Storm, yeah. and they were like, "This is never going to make any money. This will never make any money." <laughs> I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking, "Are we making a huge mistake?" But you know, fast forward six months, and it was number seven grossing. Yeah, clearly they were wrong. But when when companies do focus like this, they're less able to see the opportunities around them. Mm. Um, and the other thing that happens, so uh, point to uh, Clash of uh, Clash Royale by Supercell. 
if you think you're in that sort of RTS category and Clash Royale comes out, you're just <laughs> done. Yeah. You cannot compete with the most popular, largest community of dedicated players in the world. Like the way you unravel that is by doing something different, not by, you know, kind of sticking to your core strategy around that category. <laughs> so, you know, in our business, the new big thing is kind of right around the corner at any time. So you can't say, well, we're just going to be the biggest shooter company in the world. And with conviction, say we're not going to abandon that. Yeah, it's um, this is a good point. And the thing is, like, there's good examples of both. And there's bad examples of both, but but it really depends on the seniority of the MA team or the corp dev team you're talking about. You mentioned Zynga team back in the days telling you that you guys are just fools. This makes no money. I mean, what a foolish MA team on the other hand, because if you ever see those guys again, you'd be like, oh my God, I'm not even talking to you because you're wrong. So first first, you know, first lesson. No matter how stupid well, the idea know, is, just don't be, you know, don't be dismissive. Well, you know, they they had a good point, which was at the time, skill-based games, games that we think of today as basically kind of in that category of esports, mm -hmm. they really didn't exist on mobile. The fact that we were trying that was huge was a huge risk. But the flip side of that whole thing is like I mentioned earlier, we were trying to build games that really that, that gamers wanted to play. Um, and so we felt this is going to happen. <laughs> we might not get it right. We might be years ahead of it. It doesn't really matter. It's happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I think it also makes an exciting place of work where you're not, you're not, you know, you can do different things. You're not in just one category or one genre, uh, but you're, you know, whatever you're passionate about, whatever has place in the market and whatever you have resources to build, Go ahead. Let's let's go after it. And um, I, I like that approach, but I do understand that. There. Okay, let me let me try again. Sorry, my internet is is really poor today. So, just uh, these are easy to edit out. Anyway, uh, I do understand the uh, the approach of of focusing on only one brand, on only one genre, one category, because it allows you to build expertise, and it's a very clear strategy but at the same time um it's an exciting place of work where you're not bound to something it's instead the way that you guys were looking at at making games is here's the market here's where's the demand there's no competition in this area we can do this and most importantly we're passionate about building a game like that that also creates a very very interesting environment but i understand back in the day back in the days and maybe even to some companies now it just feels like you're unfocused um, and that feedback is, you know, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> in my opinion, that feedback yeah. is fine. Um, You're a game you, know, I, you know, the thing about focus that's kind of interesting, um, just an observation from my, my time at King, King did an amazing job with Candy Crush and they accomplished something that every studio wants to accomplish in their life, lifetime, right? Like uh, they sort of hit the pinnacle with Candy Crush. But Candy Crush, making the most of Candy Crush is all about being data-driven, being cautious about the customer experience, being really thoughtful. King, as a public company, had a lot of pressure to make Candy Crush predictable. Um, 
and the culture that I think being a great steward of a franchise like that, the culture it creates when you're, you know, when your biggest asset is all is kind of encourages you to be kind of conservative and you spend hours and hours a day talking about Candy Crush and Farm Heroes and these games that are out there kind of ultimately um, have built that company and then turn around and talk about R&D and finding the fun. Those are so diametric. They're just so different that it's, uh, I think it's hard to make the jump from one mindset to the other. And I think that's ultimately the thing that has held King back from creating that new franchise and doing new things. You go so deep in building the expertise of making that that billion dollar game into a multi-billion dollar game. It, it's it's not immediately conducive in my view to creating something new. Yeah, you're a prisoner of your own success in, in the Yeah, absolutely. If you're if you you know, you're the master of making and most not making but growing and keeping alive these magnificent puzzle games that require extreme amount of analytics and tuning with the level designs and so forth. So it's a, yeah, I understand. It's a totally different thing, but um, I want to ask you a question like paradise Bay, fantastic quality, still never really made it. And when you look at like games like Farmville Tropic escape that launched after paradise Bay, I think it did better lifetime. And I don't know if Par if Tropic escape was, was a better game. I think I enjoy Paradise Bay more, to be honest. And then you have Rise of Tyrants. Back in the days, you know, you did not have Clash Clash Royale, so there was space for this type of game, and it had a it had a focus on 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 the narrative. It uh, it had a very different battle mechanic. I mean, from Battle Nation, that was that was a sort of like a turn based sort of a, almost like an RPG battle mechanic. Very high quality. Did not launch globally. So my question is like. Why? Why did these games got stuck in this? Uh, well, no, I mean, Rise of Tyrants got stuck in the in the uh, in the soft launch and, and ultimately was canceled. And Paradise Bay did not scale, even though it had, in my opinion, all the potential. So, so why why did that happen under King? I ask my, myself that question occasionally as well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so both games really actually had great metrics, and I think that they were prisoners of the acquisition is ultimately kind of how I think about it. And, and drilling into that a little bit more, it, you go back to the, the integration of the companies and sort of how that, if it had been done better, might've actually yielded much better outcome with those products. So, but to understand that and kind of get to the bottom, like the bottom of why it went the way it did, I think, we just had radically different views of how to market games. And I like to describe it as, <clears throat> you know, we're two species of game developer. We kind of grew up in different environments with different predators and, and different food sources or whatever, and we learned different ways to survive. And so for us, we were building games where the players were literally chatting with each other in the context of the game. They were meeting off, you know, on forums to discuss strategies of how to play together, how to game the economy, um, how to win live events, and how they could collaborate on those. Candy Crush is really a sort of this single player experience that is sort of socialized, sharing my progress. But I don't have shared experiences. 
And we're really big believers in this idea that shared gameplay, shared experiences that we take away from, from playing games together is the kind of thing that you might have talked about over lunch. Uh, to, like, to give you a really tangible example, COVID has kind of stranded us all at home and we're really social species. And I connect with some of my family members playing Fortnite and we, you know, we chat and we have these amazing experiences. My cousin and I played a game just last week where we won, we got a victory royale because the last team died in the storm. And so we laugh about this and we take it away. So anyway, kind of getting back to the question around King, really different perspectives on who is, you know, a potential player of our game. And King, King's perspective was Candy Crush is for everyone. And that's actually very true and correct. But Paradise Bay and Rise of Time is absolutely not for everyone. And that meant thinking in much more kind of precision slices of who's going to play this and then marketing to those players. And that was like cultural dynamite, that idea. And we really, uh, we never really agreed on that core concept. And that meant that it just took a long time to get comfortable with the idea of all of the kinds of targeted marketing that you see these like uh, hyper data-driven UA teams doing. And while I think the, 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 uh, the team at King definitely had a lot of data and they were absolutely tracking ROI, but what, what was different and unique was the targeting all the way down to the creative and app level and the kinds of things that you typically associate machine zone being amazing at. Um, those were the tactics that we had, we had pioneered a bunch of those kinds of tactics, um, but they were culturally, uh, they didn't fit. I don't know how to describe it in a better way. <clears throat> and so that meant we spent a lot of money without targeting. We got higher CPIs on average than, than we did prior to the acquisition. And we got lower LTVs from that marketing spend on, on average. But the good side of Paradise Bay was that it actually promoted super well within the Candy Crush network. Unlike some of the puzzle games, which actually cannibalized each other, uh, Candy, uh, Paradise Bay was, it was the most significant like value add to player lifecycle across the King network. Um, Rise was never going to do that. Rise was never, you know, in practice, uh, I think Rise was never going to get a lot of value from the Candy Crush network and it needed to be marketed as basically a standalone game. And because we weren't great at the precision side of Paradise Bay, we were never going to get there for Rise. And I think that kind of, you know, different worldviews on, on, how to market, who the customer is. I think that's kind of the, the core thing that held those products back from realizing their full potential. Yeah, I, I, I mean, even without, without your explanation, it's clear just looking at King, they cannot, they have no history of launching and scaling anything else except Saga-based puzzle games. That's a fact. I mean, if you look at even games that they published, like Legends of Soulguard and Knighthood, that was the recent one they did with uh, with Midoki. Um, yeah, I played. I mean, I played that game latest today, and Knighthood now, is great, absolutely, yeah, abs like a fantastic, right? I mean, not not the best RPG. Let's be honest. No offense to Midoki, they do absolutely fantastic quality. Uh, the depth is what it is, 
but it's not a bad game at all. And it just could not do anything with, with King. So I understand the whole approach of like King is such a massive company and they have so much information about the players and, and they seem to, to know everything. And they do when it comes to a certain type of puzzle games. But when it came to anything different, even remotely different, even for, for games that have pretty similar audience, like, like Paradise Bay, they just did not have the tools or the process because they're so tuned into making what they have perfect. So yeah, <clears throat> ultimately, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why you say, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, having experience <clears throat> in a category or in a genre, or uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to uh, bring up a point that's kind of counter to the idea of being more organic with game development, but being great at marketing to casual players and incredibly efficient you know, bringing new players into Candy Crush just really didn't apply for our games. And it was ultimately leading to, let's rebuild the capabilities and the mindset. And that was not going to happen on our calendar. <laughs> that was not going to happen. And and there was no chance of, of like, that's why I like the city-state models, because in a city-state city model, you would have have your own marketing team and they could be, you know, tuned in or use the services that king has like the central services but nevertheless they would be responsible for marketing what 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 happened to your marketing team our our paid acquisition team was really just one person at the time but maybe two people and my view uh coming into the acquisition was you know king is spending three hundred thousand dollars a day or whatever it was um five hundred thousand dollars a day there's no way we don't we, we know as much as they do. That was something they felt like was a big value add. So I, it seemed at the onset like it would be ridiculous to argue with that. I learned later that we weren't really talking about the same things and we just didn't realize it. Mm. And, and this, this is a really, really, really good point that, that you're raising for, for, the, uh, for the listeners as well. It's like when you're going through this acquisition, I know it may feel right because you are talking to the founders, you're seeing how they're working, you're really gelling on a personal level and on also on the professional level because you like the way um, the other side solves problems. But nevertheless, it's also important to look at, you know, objectively of like, hey, what kind of portfolio they have? How do we fit there? And, and, and I understand there was a sort of like a positive black swan, white swan event of the Activision acquisition that changed things around quite significantly. Um, but, um, but you know, hindsight 2020, uh, Z2 wasn't that good of a fit for King's portfolio. I think it was a great fit. Yeah. If, if here, here's where I think, you know, the acquisition with Activision, that kind of was that, that black swan event for us, right? Because ultimately, Activision's view of the market was we've got this core gaming down and we need, we can expand our market by expanding into casual, mm -hmm. right? So that's, they were saying the exact opposite of King. King was saying, we got this casual thing and we need a mid-core partner. Mm. Uh, and so when King and Activision come together, we're less of a priority. And so solving the problems that I'm talking about, they're more, that just creates more more problems that aren't as uh, as important in this new ecosystem, right? There's a there's a perspective that Activision and Blizzard are going to be creating 
the core games and King's going to focus on the casual. I think that didn't happen at moment one. You know, initially it was very much King is going to be independent and keep doing what it's doing. Uh, if I'm going to say anything about Activision, I would say they're not all that tolerant of failure. Uh, <laughs> and well, re well recorded. I think that in games in particular, you have to be cautious about that because um, innovation and failure are like inseparable twins, right? Uh, you can't you can't create the new IP that players around. You cannot create Fortnite in a world where you're not allowed to fail, or you can't create Clash Royale in a world where you're not allowed to fail. Of course, and I think that is a pretty uh, and certainly no one at Activision is saying you're not allowed to fail. So, 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 okay. So, correct me if I'm wrong. Then, uh, you think that if the the, if the acquisition of, of Activision wouldn't have started so soon after the acquisition of Z2, the, uh, the cooperation would have looked totally different and you would have most likely have succeeded with the two games that you had in South Launch that had very good metrics and were the reason for, for, for the, uh, the hasty acquisition almost uh, because they looked so promising. I think, I think that that's probably true. And actually just, you know, Paradise Bay did make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It just, uh, you know, it fell short of its long-term potential. In a world where it's really hard to make stuff that people love, I think in retrospect, if you're a king today, uh, it's easy to look back and, and say, wow, that, you know, the game had good metrics. It was making money. We should have done everything we possibly could to make it a huge hit because people really loved it. You know, the amount of money people spent and the stickiness of that game was really fantastic. It was a good game. It was a it was a really good game. The story was good. It looked great back in the days. It it was the quality was great. The story actually was a big part of the experience in that game. Um, building characters and then building relationships with those characters and leveling them up and having them introduce you to new opportunities and exploring the island and yeah. unlocking new events. Um, our players love that stuff. That mindset actually. Talk about, you know, going from genre genre A to B. A lot of the things we did in building story there were inspired by our learnings from Battle Nations mm -hmm. and from the parallel development that was going on with Rise of Tyrants. You know, we one of the things that we saw with Battle Nations in particular is that um, when the story ran out, we saw a lot of people churning. Yeah. And yeah. they it gives you goals and it gives you a mission if you're not that PvP you know, strictly competitive gamer. Yeah, yeah, I 100% I, I agree. So, all right, last question. What would you do differently knowing what you know now? This is always the, uh, the hardest question, always something that I, I love to ask everybody because this is kind of like the biggest learning experience you can have. Um, <laughs> I have thought about this a lot and I really don't know that I would do anything differently. Um, that time at King was also a magical time in a lot of ways. And I didn't talk about this too much, but, you know, working with such a huge team of people that were really passionate about creating great games is just a great place to be. Um, King, especially prior to the, to the acquisition was uh, a really um, sort of very focused on building new things. There were a lot of teams trying new ideas 
um, yeah, a lot of those projects didn't work out, but there was a there was a real celebration of the learnings. And that was actually one of the things that happened uh, in the acquisition is there was less interest in celebrating those learnings. You know, there was a little less less patience for that. But I think that kind of culture really does give people the room to shine. And um, the community and the people at King were really, really amazing. And so I that part, I just don't think I would go another direction. <clears throat> and I don't think at the same time that that there was anything there was anything to do to kind of avoid the outcome with the acquisition went where, you know, uh, King became part of Activision. I think that was also good, but for very different reasons. So I can't say that there's anything that I really would have done differently. Um, I definitely wish that things worked out differently, but for the most part, uh, I think we all, you know, we grew, we benefited, we benefited uh, financially, we benefited from a lot of learnings of watching all of those things happen. Um, and now we get to do new things. Um, a lot of folks from Z2 have started new studios, Starform. Um, and I think you've mentioned uh, Lightfox Studios, which are great friends of mine, Ryan and Jordan over there. Um, and I think all of these things come out of those lessons and... Um, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, like, in your situation, there were so many things that were out of your control that had massive effect on on everything. Like, you know, investors, uh, the uh, the acquisition by Activision. Without those things, uh, you know, the story would be probably a little bit different. So it's kind of hard to I understand. It's hard to say, like, what would you do personally different? But there were several things that were out of your control. Yeah. And that's ultimately like there's no world where you can you can sell your company without signing up for things being out of your control in some fashion. Yes. Yeah. That's actually one of the personal journeys that I think that every founder goes through when it comes time to entertain a real honest offer to buy the company is. How do I think about this both rationally, maybe financially, but also on a very personal and emotional level? Am I ready to admit that I'm surrendering control? And that's, that's a, you know, I think a journey that every founder sort of hopes for and dreads at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, listen, Lou, this, this is fantastic. Like, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, we had this conversation in like a short form before, but I think it's really important to, to, you know, to have a long form conversation about it and, and hear, hear about your story because yeah, it was six years ago, but these things are, are probably even more, um, more important that this information is probably even more important now than, than it was back then with this all, with this crazy M&A going left and right, everybody getting acquired and, and, and so forth. So it's, it's a, it's a really important uh, lesson of, of life post acquisition, if you will. I think the current environment is really interesting because I think you're going to have more, there's, there's a frenzy going on. Yes. And that means maybe a little less due diligence, maybe a little bit of a lowering of the bar, 
I think you'll be able to do a whole bunch of really interesting podcasts in like 12 to 18 months on the same topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but most importantly, this is this is definitely also for the founders is as they're as they're having these discussions with potential partners and now they're more than just one or two. Uh, it's important to to find that alignment and also think about like how do you fit the portfolio and yeah black swan events happen you can't do anything about it but but this is a kind of like an important point of of um how do you want things to work after the acquisition how do you want the life to be after after you know after you've signed your company away so as you mentioned it one of the things that i think that i would recommend founders really think about is and even write down and develop over time because you're thinking on this topic will change is how do you want to work with an acquirer what are the things that are really sacred to you and what are the things that maybe you're more flexible on and know what those are before you get excited about an opportunity that excitement kind of doesn't leave as much room for you know deep pondering on these important topics around what happens with people what happens when you disagree on whether a game should be canceled or not Inevitably, those really hard discussions, you want to agree on the game rules before those things happen. And I, I think that's the one thing we kind of really, we might have stumbled on. Like, ultimately, I agreed to cancel Rise of Tyrants. I didn't really think it was the right thing for the game, but I felt like it was the right thing for the team, if that makes sense. The team was struggling. They felt like their game was amazing. And I agreed. But I also felt like it just wasn't the right place for that product, and so um, it would help everyone get on to things that would be that would be a better fit. Yeah, and you know, navigating those hard discussions um, is made easier by kind of figuring out the game rules beforehand. It's the same thing as with any kind of partnership. Um, and I think in Creativity Inc., you know, they have a great list of the things that Pixar was able to get Disney to agree with. Not all of those things are really relevant to games, but it, but it's a good fodder for thought. Yeah, yeah, I've, it's it's a moment since I've since I've read that book. I need to I need to check out where it is. <laughs> I wonder if it has a Don's autograph in it, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I need to. Well, if it does, that would be pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. It is It is a good book. And thank, big thanks for him for giving it. Another good book that he gave was, um, shit, I think it's called Skin the Cat. It's a, it's a book about, um, I think it's How to Skin the Cat or something like that. It's a book about how um, how they make movies in Hollywood, but more, more like um, how they pitch the movies. It's like, how do you, how do you kind of combine everything into one? You know, like one of the best, sort of X statements that I know is doom. It's like fight like hell. I mean, that takes, that tells everything about the game. So they kind of go, they kind of go through this Hollywood pitching process of pitching movie ideas to somebody in a, in a coffee shop and seeing how they react and kind of like, you know, constantly, constantly coming up with ideas. So anyway, good book. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to link that book when I, when I find the name, it had something to do with a cat. I don't know if it will skin the cat, but I'll, but I'll link it in the description as well as I'll link your LinkedIn so that folks who listen to it can reach out, ask some questions, uh, and then just, just say kudos for, for sharing this, uh, this amazing story. Sounds great. Thanks for taking the time. This is fun. Well, thank you so much for, for, for sharing this knowledge. I mean, truly thank you. So anyway, 
time to time to end this. I uh, hope I hope the listeners learned a lot. I did, and um, hope everybody has a good day and a good week and a and a good rest of the year. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Thank you. Take care.